we'll be starting on page 41, the fourth of seven sessions today, page 41 in those workbooks. But welcome one and all as we continue our seven-week series, we're right in the middle of it, on dealing with fear and anxiety. If you ask in any survey, what do folks fear the most? There'll be a lot of things, of course, listed, but always right at the top is fear of dying. And there is in session four that topic, which we're going to cover today, and that is the fears and the anxieties that many of us have with regard to dying. The session talks about fear of how we will die and then fear of what happens to us after we die, fear of judgment. Now, let me just say, if you are sitting here and you say, I have no fear of dying, we're going to see that it's very possible to not fear death. And I'm going to give the good news that allows you to move into death and through death fearlessly. So it is very possible, and that's our hope for everyone. But if you have not received that good news that allows you to face death fearlessly, then let me tell you, you should be fearful. There is reason to fear death outside of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to see today in our time together how it is that we, when, not if, we come to the point of our death, we can face it fearlessly. But there's only one way for that to happen. And so I hope that you will give your undivided attention to that. And if you've been inclined to say, I am not fearful about death, to consider the fact that death holds some very scary issues for us if, in fact, we do not face death through Jesus Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So we take a look at page 41 in your workbooks. And at the bottom, the second to the last the full paragraph says, The twelve disciples fell apart when Jesus was taken into custody. Without their leader, they scattered. Peter's fear of death is singled out as a particularly dramatic one. For fear of his life, he denies even knowing Jesus. Some of you remember that story. And of course, most of the other disciples would have done the same given similar circumstances. Give Peter some credit for at least following Jesus to the scene of his trial such that he was accused of being a follower of Jesus. He feared, did Peter, for his own life, and so he denied the Lord. But then at the bottom of page 41, it says, Something happens to a man when he has witnessed someone rise from the dead. Even more, something happens once the Spirit of Christ dwells within him. For Peter and the other disciples, that transformation occurs immediately. One day they're hiding behind locked doors. The next day they're preaching about Jesus in the temple courts in Jerusalem, where it's likely that they'll be treated just like their master had been and condemned to death. For the rest of us, that transformation from fear of death to fearlessness usually takes more time. And what I'd like to do in our time is talk about that transformation from fear of death to fearlessness. We're going to look at some passages in the scriptures together in just a bit. And I'm going to have our guys pass out some Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, then Len had some Bibles a second ago. And Larry still has some over here. 
<laughs> Thank you, Len. So get their attention, and they will get a copy of the Scriptures to you, because we're going to look together at the Bible to see what it says about this message that can take us from fear of death to fearlessness about, about death. So I'm going to, before we look into a particular set of passages in the Bible, I'm going to, in just a relatively few minutes, give you an overview of the entire Bible's message. So pray for me as I, as I do that. But you may recall a few weeks ago that I said that in any relationship, there are always at least three persons, and the most important person in any relationship is God. Some of you remember that? Now, the reason I say that is because the Bible starts out that way. Many of you know the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, and, and who does the Bible then start with? In the beginning, God. And so in the, very, in the fourth word of the Bible, the Bible is cluing us into the fact that the message of the Bible and the life that we live as a result of this life-giving God, this Creator God, that it's centered not upon the creature, but upon the Creator. That life is to be God-centered. It's about God. It's not first and foremost about me. And therefore, if I am going to pursue this life as intended, in the purpose for which I was made by the Creator, if that's going to happen, I must, I have to be, rightly related to the Creator. You say, so far so good. I'm rightly related to the Creator. Well, I don't know everyone here. But the good news that we're going to consider in just a bit about how we can have a right relationship to God assumes some bad news. And the bad news is we don't come into this world rightly related to God. And many people think that we do. We come into this world with a right relationship with God. And unless we do something or some things to break that relationship, then that will continue. If we've been relatively good, when we come to the time of death and judgment, God will say, you can be with me for eternity, we believe. Because we believe we started in relationship with Him, we will end in relationship with Him, unless we do something in between to sever that. But that's actually not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible tells us that we were all by nature, this is a quote from, if you care to jot it down, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. We were all by nature... Some translations say objects, some say children of wrath. Whoa, what an ugly phrase that is. But by nature, children of wrath. Well, what does that mean? It means that naturally, by nature, I come into this world and you come into this world with God wrathful toward us. That word wrathful, we're using that instead of anger because it's anger indeed, but it's intense anger. And God has wrath, He has intense anger naturally toward 
human creatures. Why is that? Well, let's go back then a bit. And let's remind ourselves as to what the Bible says with regard to our story. In the beginning, it's about God. And God makes man. And God instructs man. And he gives very clear direction with regard to who he is, who they are, and what he expects of them. Many of you know that story, but God tells them, I've given you a beautiful garden paradise that is to be the setting in which you're going to fulfill your purpose before me. And originally they were in right relationship to God. But God gave them a probationary test. And he said, in the midst of this garden, there is one tree you may not eat of. And in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. We know the sad tale. In the third chapter of your Bible, the man and the woman directly disobey their creator God. And as a result of that disobedience, the Bible calls it sin. What God promised, what God warned actually happened. In the day you eat of it, you will now die. You say, you know, Brown, I've read that story a few times. And as I recall, Adam and Eve, those first two, lived for a while after that. You're right, they lived physically after that. But you need to understand that the word death means this. It means separation. And there are three kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death, which is the separation of the spirit from the body. There is, though, more seriously, spiritual death, which is the separation of the individual from God. And thirdly, there is what the Bible speaks of as eternal death. And that is the separation of the individual from God forever. Now, Adam and Eve died the moment they sinned. They were separated. They died spiritually toward God. And immediately in Genesis chapter 3, you see the effects. Everything becomes distorted. Everything becomes disoriented. The man and the woman who were made for right relationship with God are now accusing God of having made a mistake. They're now accusing each other. Things go south very quickly. As the man and the woman are banished now from the garden paradise. They're banished from God's presence. They have died spiritually. They have children. We read about a couple of them in chapter 4. Cain and Abel. You know that Cain murdered his brother Abel. The first murder in the Bible. And Cain and Abel, excuse me, had children. Their children had children. And guess whose children we are? We all come from Adam and Eve. And the reason the Bible says that we all by nature, naturally, were children of wrath is because as children of ultimately Adam and Eve, we come into this world born spiritually separated from God, spiritually dead. So when I said to you that, in order for us to face death without fear, we have to be rightly related to God, which is what we were made for. If you immediately assume, well, I'm good with God, rethink that. On what basis am I good with God if I came into this world separated from God? So God 
after the entrance of sin and after things go south very quickly, we see the effects of sin. We come to Genesis chapter 6 and God introduces us to a man named Noah. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God gave Noah instructions for how anyone who was willing to obey God's instructions could be rescued, delivered, could be saved. Rescued, delivered, saved from what? God's wrath. God is righteously wrathful, angry at the fact that his creatures have rebelled against him. But he is also gracious and he has provided a way of rescue deliverance. In that case, an ark. You all know the story. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible tells us, in the New Testament, the second part of your Bible. And yet he was ridiculed. He did this, by my reckoning, for 120 years as he built this massive float, this boat. Followed God's instructions meticulously, and only Noah and seven other persons were willing to follow God's instructions. Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons and their wives... And a wrathful God, whose anger burns against sin, destroyed those who came into the world as objects, children of wrath. They were separated spiritually, they were executed physically, and they went into eternity with eternal death. All three, physical, spiritual, and eternal. And that will happen to any person who does not come into the safety of the rescue, the deliverance, the salvation that God graciously offers. So early on, we see how seriously God takes this issue. He is not messing around. I don't mean to be flippant. God does not mess with sin. There's no such thing as a little sin in the eyes of a holy God. No such thing. There is no such thing as a little white lie. The Bible never makes any sort of statement like that. How many sins do we have to commit to know that we are in this spiritually separated, spiritually dead condition? We're born that way, but, but what do I have to do in order to know it myself? Beyond reading it in the Bible, to know it by experience. How many sins do I have to commit? You know how many? One. Because the Bible says, if we break God's law, God's commands, in one point... This is a quote. We are guilty of all of it. Anybody lied? Anybody ever, not just, and that's a spoken, that's not even an, an act. That's a sin of speech. What about sins of thought? Or the Bible takes it even further. It says, in James chapter 4 in your New Testament, that... It's not only the things we do that violate God's commands that are sinful and that require His punishment, require His punishment, but it's the things that He's told us to do that we fail to do. To put it another way, it's not just sins we commit, it's things we omit that we're supposed to do. Now friend, you put that all together, 
There's not a single person sitting here or standing here who could go into through death fearlessly unless a gracious God somehow intervenes. And so God begins to intervene. He shows us how bad it is in the Noah story, and He shows us how gracious He is with the ark. But then the earth begins to be populated, has these children. We're part of that. The Bible story moves on with God bringing people as His emissaries to tell His creatures, this is what you must do in order to be rightly related to me. And these emissaries, on God's behalf, fall into three major categories. You read the first part of your Bible, you're going to find men who fit into these categories. There were prophets that came from God. And a prophet was one who spoke for God. And so you find guys like Moses coming along. And Moses is God's prophet par excellence. The Bible predicts that there's going to be in the future one who is like Moses, but greater than Moses who will come. But in the first part of your Bible, God sends a guy named Moses as one of these prophets to tell God's creatures, this is what you must do to be rightly related to me. And God gives his commands very explicitly now through Moses to to people. And the Bible tells us a number of times, you do this, you will live. You keep these laws, you will live. How many people lived? Cusack. Why did no one live? Why did no one make it out alive? Because no one kept it. And by the way, that included Moses. Even the prophet and the greatest of the prophets, Moses himself, could not escape death. By virtue of the fact that he was a sinner himself. There's a long line of prophets. Many then of the books in the first part of your Bible are named after some of these prophets. And there's Ezekiel and there's Isaiah and there's Jeremiah and there's Daniel. And God sends prophets to tell people, this is what you must do to live. He sent prophets and he sent priests. And so you'll read in the first part of your Bible that there were these priests that God said are going to come before me on behalf of the people in an effort for them to be rightly related to me. God gave elaborate instructions about when the priest could come before God and under what circumstances he could do that. Much of the first part of your Bible contains instructions and scenarios in which that happened. But all of these priests died. And every one of these priests not only had to go to God in order to have a covering made for the, for the sins of the people, but for their sins as well. Because like Moses the prophet, these priests were also sinful. And God sent kings to rule for him and to instruct his people and to model his character before his people. But every last one of them failed. The greatest among them, King David, failed spectacularly, committing adultery and committing murder in order to cover it up. Some of you know that. God sent prophets and God sent priests and God sent kings, and every last one of them were not up to the task. Because they had the same problem the people they were trying to help at. 
And through Moses, God gave the law and instructions that included things the priests were supposed to do to come into God's presence. And those things included offering sacrifices. So you'll read in the first part of your Bible, sacrifices and the slaying of animals and the covering of blood. And why is that? Because a wrathful God is looking at the sin of people and he requires the death of a substitute in order for one's sin to be covered. And these animals, day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, were slain on behalf of the sins of people before a righteous, holy God. And yet... The offense is so great before a holy God, so infinite, that the death of all these animals could not ultimately take away sin. And so we end the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, with a huge problem. People are born into this world as children of wrath by nature, sinful before God. Separated from God is the way we come into the world. And God has given a number of overtures, none of which have worked. All because all of the people who needed it and all of the people who were dispensing it were all in the same boat. They were all sinful. Every prophet, every priest, and every king, and every sacrifice was inadequate. And then the second part of your Bible opens. We call it the New Covenant, the New Testament, the New Arrangement. And it begins with a new prophet and a new priest and a new king, thanks be to God. And his name is Jesus. Jesus the Christ. It's not his first name and his last name. His first name is Jesus. And his name means this, Yahweh, Jehovah saves. We're told in the very first chapter in the New Testament of your Bible, you will call his name Jesus, said the angel, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God has come to rescue, to deliver, to save. And Christ is a title. And the title means The anointed one. He's the one who was promised in predictions in the first part of your Bible over centuries. And now he has come. And he's the perfect prophet. If you care to jot it down in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, John says that Jesus is the one who has revealed the Father because he has come from the Father's side. And that word that's revealed there means he has, it's a fancy word, he has exegeted the Father. It's a fancy way of saying he has explained, he has shown, he has has displayed God in a way that no other person could because the prophets in the first part of the Bible all spoke for God. But Jesus is the God about whom they spoke. He's not just speaking for God. He is God. So the perfect prophet comes. And Jesus, the Bible promises us, is coming back as the perfect king. So that his people, 
who have been rescued by him, delivered by him, saved by him, will reign with him as originally designed in his creation. He's the perfect prophet. He's coming as the perfect king. But in between, he's the perfect priest as well. Hmm. Let me explain that. In John chapter 1 and verse 29 in your Bible, John 1, 29, a fellow named John the Baptist saw Jesus coming from a distance, the Bible tells us. And in John 1, 29, John the Baptist said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist understood that this one who has come is now one who, unlike all of those priests in the first part of your Bible, who would offer animals and had to offer animals as sacrifice for their own sins, this one now has no sin. He is the Lamb of God who, unlike all of those animals, can remove, take away the sin of the world. How? By His death on their behalf. One of the predictions about this anointed one, this Christ, this Messiah, in the first part of your Bible, this one who would come, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, that He has had laid on Him, I'm quoting, He will have laid on Him the iniquity, the sin of us all. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he's not just any prophet, priest, or king. He's God. God has now come on the scene to do for us what no one else could do. And to serve as that perfect prophet, that perfect king, that perfect priest. We know the story that Jesus was executed. But Jesus' execution was not an accident. It was not being at the wrong place at the wrong time. It was tragic in the sense that it shows the heinousness of the sin of people that when God was with us, we hated Him. It's tragic in that sense, but it's blessed in this sense. That God Almighty knew all of that when He came. He knew all that was going to happen when He came. But He came anyway. And He came to accomplish what no one else could. When Jesus died on the cross, now that sacrifice can never be renewed. Never. One of the latter books in your Bible, in the New Testament, is the book of Hebrews. It tells us over and over again that unlike the priests in the first part of the Bible who continually offered sacrifice that could never take away sins, this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has died for sins, and here's what it says, one time for all. Once for all. And God now looks upon him as he's there on the cross, and the wrath of God, the anger of God, is turned away after Jesus takes its full impact upon himself on the cross. The anger of God the Father at sin is absorbed by Jesus on the cross and the Father accepts His sacrifice as infinitely complete for anyone who will come to Him. Now, I said we're going to look at the Bible. 
you thought I'd never get there. But I would like for you to look at Romans chapter 1 in your Bible. Romans chapter 1. And it's marked, those Bibles that the guys handed out are marked at Romans chapter 1. So if you have one of those, just turn to where it's marked. And I want to, in our remaining time, go through the blessed message of the opening chapters of this book that summarize what I've been trying to tell you, and I want you to see it. The very first chapter of this book, called Romans, gives the theme for the entire 16 chapters that comprise this book. It's got 16 chapters in it. But the theme of the entire 16 chapters is given in the first chapter and in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Why is this message the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes? Verse 17. For, because in it, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now what does that mean? The theme of these entire 16 chapters is found in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God. What's the gospel? The word gospel means there's good news. The first part of your Bible left off with really bad news. All the prophets and the priests and the kings couldn't get it done. Here's the good news. There's a prophet, priest, and king who absolutely can't. And so there is the gospel, the good news. And that good news is in verse 17. Well, excuse me, verse 16. That everyone who believes can have salvation. Salvation means rescue, deliverance. Rescue, deliverance from what? From the anger, the wrath of God against sin. And it's not even anger, it's not even anger from what? It's anger from whom? It's rescue, it's deliverance from the anger of whom? God. Friends, we need, as sinful people, to be rescued, delivered, saved from the righteous anger of a holy God because of our sin. The good news is everyone who believes can have that. Why? Because it no longer depends now on righteousness, right living, stuff you do. But notice what verse 17 says. In the gospel, a righteousness from who is revealed? A righteousness from God. I can now have a righteousness that comes from God. I don't have any righteousness. I came into the world sinful and under God's anger. But the good news is I can have right standing. I can have righteousness that I didn't do anything to earn. It belongs to somebody else. It belongs to God. But He's going to give it to me. He'll give it to me if I believe. Now... 
Chapter 1 and verse 18, then, starts with this whole argument. And you'll be glad to know, I'm not going to go through the whole argument. I don't have time. But starts with this argument, then, to prove what was said in verses 16 and 17. It starts in verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed. You guys see that? The wrath of God. The anger of God. And if you were to go through and read that, and I encourage you to do that, you go all the way down to verse 32, and you would find from verse 18 to verse 32 of chapter 1 that the anger of God abides upon everybody. Because of sin. And then you go to chapters 2 and 3, and you find that it doesn't matter who you are. That's the argument of chapters 2 and 3. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter if you're Jewish, if you're Gentile. It does not matter. That's why verse 16 back in chapter 1 said, The gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. And then it goes on to prove that Jew and Gentile alike are all sinful. And then you come to chapter 3. Will you look at chapter 3? Verse 9, after all of that, we have made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, tongues practice deceit, poison of vipers is on their lips, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, feet swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, the way of peace they did not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. No one who does good. No one righteous. Every last person who has ever been born comes into this world by nature under the wrath of God. And Romans is saying that's the bad news. And I'm reiterating for you the bad news in chapters 2 and 3. It's that bad. The good news is you can have a righteousness from somebody else. Now people in that condition that's just described in chapter 3, what do they do? How do they avoid this wrath of God? What can they possibly do? And some would say, well, we can keep trying harder. Give money to the church. Live a good life. When I stand before this holy God, I'll say, hey, look all the stuff I did. And do you know what will happen? Your righteousness will not stand. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how great a guy or gal you are, it will not stand before a holy God. How do I know this? Verse 19 of Romans 3. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Nobody will ever stand before God and say, I'm a good guy. I'm a good gal. Nobody. Nobody. Every mouth will be silenced. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. 
It's through the law we become conscious of sin. Through the law I see how far I fall short. No one has ever kept it. No one except Jesus. Well, if it ends there, it's all bad news. But verse, the verse we're going to look at, and this will be our last passage. The verse we're going to look at in just a moment is, in my opinion, one of the greatest verses in the entire Word of God. And the first couple of words of this verse are a couple of the most blessed words in the entire Word of God. Remember, up to this point, chapter 3 and verse 20, it is everybody is hopeless. Everybody is under the wrath of God, born that way, can't do anything about it. You have no righteousness of your own to stand before God. Every mouth will be silenced. And verse 21 says, but now. (laughs) In contrast, but in contrast to all of that, but now. A righteousness from who? God. Do you all remember chapter 1 and verse 17? In it, the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed. And we've now come full circle from chapter 1 and verse 17 to chapter 3 and verse 21. Now a righteousness from God, apart from rules, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. All of these guys I was talking about earlier that spoke for God and pointed to one who was going to come, they're all pointing to this. This righteousness that's not yours, not mine, comes from God. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith, that is believing, in none other than Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the character of God, the glory of God. And we're justified freely, verse 24, by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of covering, of atonement. There's a fancy word called propitiation that means the anger, the wrath of God is assuaged by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that's translated sacrifice of atonement, it's propitiation. Jesus has propitiated, he has satisfied the anger of God under which all of us come into this world. So the question then for us is this. How will the anger of God that abides on every person that comes into this world be handled? You will either receive the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf and the perfect, absolutely righteous life that he lived. You will either receive that by believing the message of the good news of the gospel or you will forever abide under the wrath of God. You will either receive the payment Jesus made or you will pay yourself forever. There will be no exceptions. Now, when we close in just a few minutes, we're going to have opportunity 
for you to do that, for you to believe what Jesus did. To receive by believing what Jesus did, have it applied to you personally. You say, I thought there was a workbook. Session 4, beginning on page 41 and following, is really all about what I've just said. I've covered it in more detail. But it's all about how people fear death, how they'll die, and they fear what happens after they die. And the gospel is designed for us to be prepared for when, not if, we die physically and we stand before God. Now, you'll have opportunity to pray and receive by believing what Jesus has done for you in his death and in his perfect life. To have not your own now righteousness, but his righteousness applied to you. Before we do that, I want you to think about something. If Jesus Christ, God who came as man, if his righteousness is applied to you, if the covering of his blood that satisfied the righteous anger of God is applied to you, if those things are applied to you when you come to him by believing who he is and what he did, if that happens, let me ask you, how many of your sins are taken care of? And here's what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that every last sin that you ever have committed, that you committed this morning, that you committed during cafe community, that you'll commit in the, in the future. This is the part people don't get. Okay, I come to God, I get a clean slate. Uh-uh. Because you'll mess up the clean slate. You get a totally new slate supplied from God and He places your name on His slate. And I now have the righteousness of Jesus Christ and I have the forgiveness of sin past, present, and future. I want you to look at one last verse to prove that and then we're done. But it's the next chapter in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And Romans 4 is now elaborating on what we saw in chapter 3. This comes to everybody who believes. Not by what they do, because what they do is no good. Because <laughs> they're sinful. So it's not by what you do, it's in whom you believe and what he did. And so verse 4 of chapter 4 says, When a man works... His wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked. God justifies the wicked. That word justifies means makes, declares righteous those who aren't righteous. He declares righteous, justifies who? The wicked. God the judge says, I'm satisfied with the sacrifice of my son. And if you receive that sacrifice for you, I declare you righteous before my holy justice. Even though you're wicked. God justifies the wicked and his faith then is credited as righteousness. And David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man 
to whom God credits righteousness apart from what he does. Verses 7 and 8. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's the good news. You can be a person for whom the Lord will never count your sin against you. Because Jesus has paid it all. And when I die physically and I will stand before a holy God, will I attempt to stand before this holy God in my own righteousness? And say, look what I did. And the Bible says, no one will be able to stand before him. Every mouth will be silenced. Or will I say, thank you, holy God, that God the Son has done for me what I could not do for myself. Thank you for the righteous life of Jesus and the sacrifice of his death that paid the penalty for my sin and assuaged your anger, your righteous anger toward me. Those are the people that will have eternal life, not eternal death. And so this is my favorite part of doing these series. It's being able to give the good news. If you walk out of here and you do not receive the gracious gift that God offers in Jesus Christ, I can say this before God. The Apostle Paul said, I have not hesitated to declare to you the whole counsel of God and therefore... My hands are clean before you. I cannot force you to do that. But I beg you to do so. Acknowledge who you are. You're a sinner before God. You came into this world under his anger and his wrath, as did I. You have no hope of eternal life with him. Except he intervenes. He has done so in Jesus Christ. And you pray to him and say, Lord, I know I've sinned. I know I'm a sinner. I know I have no hope in myself. I believe that Jesus has come to do for me what I could not do for myself. And I ask you to apply what he did to me. I ask you to deliver me, save me. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, delivered, will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the blessed, blessed message of the gospel. Good news. It's good news, particularly as seen against the backdrop of the really bad, bad news, the dark news of our rebellion against you, a rebellion that is deep and wide and and infinite because your holiness is infinite. One offense against a holy God is worthy of eternal punishment. One. Lord, there's no way to count. There's no way to keep track. There's no way to therefore atone for all that I have done and all that I am capable of. And Lord, you would have been right. You would have been just to condemn me, to condemn humanity. You're not obligated to come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so we praise you and we thank you that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, has come. And he has accomplished it. On the cross, he has shed his blood. It covers every sin. He has lived a perfect life of righteousness. Only he has done that. Never sinned. And both of those things, his life and his death, come to me when I believe. I 
thank you that at age 19 you showed me that. And my life has never been the same. I am still sinful. But my position has now changed from a child of wrath to a child of God. And the power of sin has been broken so that I can now live in a way that pleases you. I fail. I fail daily. The blood of Jesus covers my sin, past, present, future. And I look forward to being with the King. And one day removed from not only the power of sin, but the very presence of sin. This is the good news. Thank you for it. Thank you for the Son who made it possible. And I thank you for the Spirit that's working on the hearts of people right now to draw them out of the world and to yourself. And I pray that there are some who are from their hearts sincerely acknowledging their own sin and asking you, who alone can rescue, deliver, save them, to do that because of the blood and the life of the Lord Jesus. Lord, as a result of that, we need not fear death. We will pass from this life, this existence, into life with you. Absolutely guaranteed. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we will do, because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for that security. May we go this week and live and bask in the glory of the fact that we are the children of God. And be like the great apostle John, who when he thought about that, and now we are the children of God, and, and that we're called the children of God, and that's exactly what we are, he said. And so, Lord, help us to be amazed. And in that amazement, out of gratitude, help us to live for you because we love you and thank you for what you've done for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, one last set of announcements. We're done. There's a insert, an insert in those workbooks, and it has announcements on it. I just want to keep calling your attention to that. Those of you that are new, there's some stuff on there for you if you're interested in it. November 20 at our house, Saturday morning, 10 a.m. to noon, is our newcomer's orientation. We would love to have you come to our house for nothing other than to get to know you. No program, no obligation, any of that. So if you want to do that, let the folks at the information table know before you leave. They'll put your name on the list, okay? That's Saturday, November 20. The next day, Sunday, November 21, is our next baptism. And if you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior just now, We praise God for that. Jesus says now, you're going to walk in a new direction with me. The beginning of that new direction is to be willing to stand before people and do something really weird. Get dunked in water. And you get dunked in water to say, I believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a command of Jesus for all those who have received him as their Savior, following him as their Lord. So if that's happened to you, you need to do that. On the way out today, let me know, and we can set a time to get together to go over uh, what that means and, uh, and, and all that's involved, okay? All right, thank you all for your kind attention. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.